Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, as we study the life of Jesus, one of the things that we'll notice is that Jesus' life was so great that even the passages that lead up to His life that have to do with other people's life and ministry provide insight into uh, what this series is calling the best life. And uh, that is certainly the case again with our text from Luke chapter 3. This Sunday in Advent, the second Sunday, is one that is dedicated to uh, John the Baptizer. John, Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. The title of this message is, Out of the Desert and Into Time. Luke says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch, that would be Herod Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Herod Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. We live in a world where On any given day, and this has been the case for thousands of years, there are at least 30 to 40 different wars being engaged. Even in our world, we can think about the wars in which our country has been engaged, the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, our participation in places like Libya, and now to some extent, and maybe to a growing extent, in Syria. But there are other wars going on, most of which we know nothing about. They never make it to our headlines. But the ones we do hear about are troubling enough. The things that are going on in uh, Palestine and Israel are troubling. You have... uh, People on both sides of that border looking at those on the opposite side of the border and wanting the extinction of those they see. It's a very troubling time, and little has changed. I had the funeral of a man in his 80s 10 days ago. He was a retiree of Delta Airlines. He had worked for them for 44 years. And one of the things that I do when I'm asked to uh, speak at the funeral of someone I've never met, I go back to the year in which they were born. And I pull out things that were true in the year 
that that person was born. It sounds like a trivial thing to do, but it really isn't trivial at all when you look at it. Uh, I, I find it interesting, and I find most people who come to funerals find it interesting who was the president during the year that a certain person was born. Uh, They find it interesting how many different presidential administrations a person has lived through. And uh, invariably, I find that uh, whether a person dies at age 52 or 82, the number of administrations is evenly divided between political parties. This particular man was born in a year in which Uh, the stock market hit a record high, 328 points. On the Dow Jones Stock Exchange, it was 1929, and one month later, the stock exchange plummeted to its lowest level and began the Great Depression, and uh, the stock market would not reach 328 again for 25 years. But one thing caught my eye above everything else in the year that this man was born, there was a, an act of violence, a multiple-day uh, act of violence that I would call a war. I don't know that they actually proclaimed it a war, in which uh, Israelis and Palestinians waged battles against each other. And in a single two-day period, there were 133 joint is- Israelis and Palestinians who were killed. And I thought, <laughs> not much changes It's so easy, it seems, for people to look at people with whom they disagree and conclude that those people are not worth being with. And I think it's it's tragic. I think Luke thought it was tragic. Uh, And that is why so often in Luke's gospel you see him focusing on people who... Uh, by any measure from anybody else, would be considered a nobody. Luke is not the only one to open his gospel with the life and ministry of the baptizer, John the baptizer. Early in his gospel, he calls forth John the baptizer from the wilderness or the desert. But indeed, all four gospels begin with the life, sometimes the birth, but certainly the life and ministry of the baptizer. He's described by Luke in Luke chapter 1 as a relative of Jesus, though they are, uh, later on, we we certainly could not conclude that they were close relatives, but they were relatives. As I said this morning, the gospel writers, when they describe him, they describe him as an odd figure because of his dress, perhaps. Matthew tells us that John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. He's an odd figure because of his diet. Matthew again says that his food was locust and wild honey, locust being, uh, I'm assuming, large grasshoppers, and his domain. He was odd because of his dress, because of his diet, and because of his domain. He stayed in the desert all the time. He wasn't very social. If he did show up at a party, which I don't know if he ever showed up at a party, most of the time my guess is that you would never know he was there. In fact, I conclude that God had to make him go out. God had to make him go out. John was not one who longed for the publicity. He was not one who longed for the popularity. Uh, He seems to be a nobody darting out of nowhere, spewing nonsense. He's on the stage in a whirlwind. 
And then, as quickly as he arrives, John is gone. Out of the desert and into time. Luke records probably more about the ministry of John, at least in its early stages, than any other gospel writer. And he does so by placing John within a specific place and within a specific time frame, and he dates John's arrival not with uh, January the 24th, such and such a year, but as is customary among the scientists of his day, Luke dates John's arrival by grouping him with other leaders who were known to have ruled and lived during that stage of history. This is indeed the third time that Luke locates his narrative amid the major actors of the local world stage. The first time was in the birth of John the Baptist, which in Luke chapter 1 verse 5 says, was in the days of King Herod of Judea. The second time is when the birth of Jesus takes place, which according to Luke in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 occurred under the rule of Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And now, as the baptizer John is about to start his ministry, Luke records him amid a number of somebodies, that is, historical figures who were well known to the people of that day. I'd like to share with you three things about the people with whom Luke dates this baptizer. First of all, Luke places John among the political somebodies of his day. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor from the year 14 A.D. all the way to 37 A.D. He ruled the entire Roman Empire for 23 years. And during that time... Jesus' ministry reached its full blossom. Tiberius was an important man, perhaps the most powerful man in all the world at the time that he was ruler over Rome. Pontius Pilate is the second political somebody with whom Luke associates John the baptizer. Pontius Pilate is not to be uh, uh, listed in comparison to the Roman emperor Caesar Tiberius, not at all, but still he was important for the area of Judea. Pontius Pilate was the fifth prefect, or uh, our most familiar word is procurator. He was the fifth procurator uh, of the Roman province of Judea. And he was the procurator from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. The interesting thing, this is just a side note, during the uh, procuratorship of Pontius Pilate in the years 26 to 36, there was only one year, the year A.D. 30, in which uh, Passover fell on a Friday. I don't think that's insignificant. Then he mentions, along with Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, Luke says that during the time of Herod Antipas of Galilee, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his sons. Uh, Not all of his sons were of equal caliber. 
one of those sons only ruled in his area, small province, for a short time, and the Roman Empire, distrusting him, took his part away from him and gave that to his brother. But Herod Antipas of Galilee, his brother Herod Philip of Aturia, and then uh, a, a person by the name of Lysanias of Abilene. So you have uh, five major political somebodies of that day, and Luke says John, this baptizer, this mere voice in the middle of a no place called the desert, appears at the same time these people are on the world stage. I think it's interesting and needful to mention at this point that while God could have spoken through Tiberius, and had he spoken through Tiberius, it would have been powerful. God could have spoken through Pontius Pilate, and had he spoken through Pilate, it would have been not as powerful if he had spoken through Tiberius, but certainly influential. Many people thought that God was speaking through the Herod brothers. It is doubtful that he did, but if he had, his word would have been influential. But God spoke through none of those. God spoke through a nobody. The nobody's name was John. Not only does Luke place John among the political somebodies of his day, but he places John's ministry among the religious somebodies of the day. Luke says that it was during the high priest, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Annas and Caiaphas. They were a father and son. Annas was the father, and Caiaphas was one of five boys that Annas had. All of them were priests. All of them were high priests. Annas was a high priest from the year 6 to around somewhere between the years of 15 to 18 A.D. And then the Roman Empire got angry at him and took the high priesthood officially, at least in title, away from him. But he remained one of the most influential leaders, religious leaders, in Israel in spite of having been deposed. Probably he was, continued his influence because when the Roman Empire took the high priesthood away from Annas, they gave it successfully and uh, consecutively uh, to his five boys. And one of those boys, Caiaphas, ruled as kind of a puppet high priest from the year somewhere around 18 to the year 36, which means he was the high priest in title and his father was still the high priest in influence at the time that Jesus walked the earth. And Caiaphas and Annas both, along with Pontius Pilate, would become very significant players in the life of Jesus. Herod Antipas, by the way, would be very influential in the life of John the Baptizer, for Herod Antipas would be the one who would have John's head cut off because he stole the wife of his brother Philip and John confronted him over it. it takes a pretty bold prophet to confront a king who has the power to kill you. 
So Luke places John among these religious somebodies. They were the Billy Grahams of the day. They were the Pope John Paul II's of the day. They were uh, the, uh, uh, the cardinals of the day, depending on which worship tradition you come out of. And, and when people saw these two men, Annas and Caiaphas, or Annas and any of his five sons, they immediately thought, though probably in a misguided way, that they were in the presence of something holy. It was probably the furthest thing that they were. God could have spoken through Annas. A lot of people would have listened. A lot of people would have stood upright like a dog listening for its master. And they would have listened to the words of Annas. Or he could have spoken through Caiaphas. Caiaphas knew the word. Those boys knew the word. You didn't get where they were by not knowing the Old Testament Scriptures. They probably knew those Scriptures better, better than anybody in Jerusalem in that day. Better than anybody in the surrounding area of Judea in that day. But God didn't speak to Annas. And God didn't speak to Caiaphas. God spoke to a nobody. So Luke places John among the political somebodies. And Luke places John amid the religious somebodies. And before I go to the third one, let me just stop right here for a moment and say that it is as if Luke is making a statement here. Now, Luke is a meticulous researcher. Uh, If you go to uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, you you see a little bit of Luke's uh, research methods. He's heard a lot of rumors about the life and ministry of Jesus. He's heard a lot of stories going around, and he thought it right to do research on his own. That included interviewing people. Probably uh, Luke interviewed the, the mother of Jesus, Mary, because there are things he puts in his gospel that he could have only found out either from the Holy Spirit directly or from Mary. And I believe that the Holy Spirit led him to interview Mary. He was a meticulous researcher. He says, he says, I thought it right since I knew of all these things and I have heard of these things from those who first witnessed them to give you, Theophilus, we don't know exactly who Theophilus was, an orderly account of the things that happened so that you will know the certainty of what you have heard. It's Luke's meticulous method of research that leads him, I believe, to place pivotal individuals with dates that align those individuals with the important somebodies of the day. But Luke is doing more than dating people. He's not just putting John among those political and religious somebodies of his day. He's putting them against the political and religious somebodies of his day. For you see, it is the uh, inclination of politics to move away from God. But it's also the inclination of organized religion to move away from God. And so if God is going to move, 
It will certainly not be within the realm of politics, although some people believe that it will. They're mistaken. But it also will not be among the realm of organized religion. Most of the time when God does something great, he does it with some radical out there in the desert who who looks like he hasn't shaved or cut his hair or washed his hair in a long time and he's wearing something weird and his diet is weird. Well, sometimes he just uses, well, uh, John the Baptist. I'll never forget the disappointment I felt the first time it dawned on me that John the Baptist was not an ancestor of Baptists. Really, we should never have called him John the Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist. He was a baptizer. But even his baptism was not the same as the baptism that Jesus instructed us to have. John's was a baptism getting people ready to receive the Lord. Jesus' baptism is a baptism by immersion after we have received the Lord. It's totally different things. We don't baptize in John's baptism anymore. But here he is, this John the baptizer, among and against the political and religious somebodies of his day. But not only that, number three is this. Luke also connects John with a prophetic somebody out of the Old Testament. There's a quotation in uh, the verses I read to you in Luke chapter 1. It begins with verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words Isaiah the prophet, the voice A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. For every valley shall be filled in, every mountain made low. The crooked roads become straight, the rough roads smooth, and all people will see the salvation of the Lord. This is an unusual passage, an unusual quote. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Originally, it was a scripture that was to describe the return of the exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem after 70-some-odd years of captivity. And Isaiah is describing, after the long-suffering of the people of Jerusalem and Judah in Babylon, he describes them coming back, and it is a passage that deals with the promise of return from exile. He says, God will make straight paths through the wilderness... A smooth and easy return, a new exodus bringing the people of Israel out of Babylonian bondage and back to the promised land. This path is for God's people. It is God-made, it is God-led, it is the proclamation of a prophet made to the people, and it is declarative, it is promising, and it is hopeful. But Luke deals with it differently. Luke doesn't show it as regarding a people. He he uses it to, to describe a single individual, John the baptizer in the desert. So here we have John connected to political somebodies, religious somebodies, and then a prophetic somebody through whom God did speak. It's in the 15th year of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate governor, Herod the Tetrarch, a ruler, his brother Philip a ruler, Lysanias ruler, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and in the middle of all this, as prophesied by Isaiah, there stands against all these paltry, insignificant John, the son of Zechariah. And he's the one 
whose word will fill the valleys, will level the mountains, will straighten out the crooked roads and smooth over the rough places in order to build a direct path for the Son of God, clothed in love and mercy and grace. Seven of these historical leaders represent the collective power of the world. And against them all stands just John. He's not armed with political power or military power or religious power. He's just armed only with God's word, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. David Luce, a preaching professor at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, says that Luke insists that these events, the life of John, the birth of Christ, events about as small and insignificant as you can imagine, deserve to be placed alongside the world-shaking people and the events of the day. Really. Luke dares his readers to ask, Luke says, what does the birth of two small children or the ministry of a misplaced prophet have to do with kings, emperors, and governors? And Luke's reply is, Everything. This is the way it is with the gospel. It seems so small, it's easy to miss. More than that, God's mercy comes disguised as human weakness. Two vulnerable children, John the baptizer and Jesus the Christ, who will grow up to change the world, an instrument of Roman torture turned into the means by which God reconciles the world. David Luce says there's always something of the mustard seed about the gospel. It creeps in out of nowhere, usually on the face of nobody, small, insignificant, and then it grows and it spreads and it infests whole fields, inviting all kinds of creatures to take refuge. And so the word of the Lord comes to this nobody, just like he still does. Because he still comes to people like you. He still comes to people who may think from time to time that we're nobodies. But you're not a nobody. God says, John, you're not a nobody. Oh, no, you're not Tiberius or Pilate or whoever, but I'm not speaking through them. I'm speaking through you. You're not a nobody. And the best life is one that recognizes how very important you are to God. This is no small thing to Luke. This is one of the reasons I love the Gospel of Luke more than it's my favorite book. He believes in the small in the power of the small. Someone said this, said, said this is no small thing with Luke. For in the previous chapter, the well-known and much-beloved Christmas story of Luke 2, Mary and Joseph are told there is no room in the inn, and they must go where? Outside. To somewhere else to have that baby, whom we know to be the very Word of God incarnate. And then Luke tells us there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. These shepherds out in the country, away from the crowd, caring for their sheep. Most scholars say that given their vocation, it is likely that they were considered unfit for any type of imperial Roman census. 
They were rejected or at least overlooked. Not counted in the census, they are discredited and denied the stature of full personhood. They are outside too. John was outside. A nobody from nowhere spewing nonsense. But he was the one God chose. And God still chooses nobodies. Because in God's eyes, there are no nobodies. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is so powerful. It's so rich and deep. There's so much there. Lord, we could take a a single selection of Scripture verses and we could spend our entire lives mining them. And at the end of a long life, after having mined them every day of that life, we would still not come close to mining all of the gold nuggets that lie hidden within those inspired verses. Lord, tonight you reminded us that before you came, before you walked on the stage, there was a man out of nowhere who no one paid attention to that you decided to use. And when you used him, people could not not pay attention to him because he demanded attention, because he had the touch of God on him. Lord, John's life and ministry remind us that when we think we are used up and when people may turn their back on us and walk away, you still desire to use us. And Lord, we stand grateful in the shade of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.